0: Please go to 2 Corinthians. As I just prayed, this is my concern and prayer for Baraka, that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ would not slip away from being a focus, the focus point of our, our, our existence. We exist here to meet on Sundays to build one another up in the faith and get encouragements. Sure, we sure we do gospel proclamation on the Lord's Day. We should. No one should ever walk away from a service at Baraka and not have some opportunity, somehow, some way, for a connection with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that being said, we are people who go out. We go out and we have friends, we have family circles, we have social networks, and there are probably hundreds of people represented by you who are here tonight, all of us together, so that the gospel just will keep pulsating, pulsating right in the midst of how we think, how we live, how we, the contours of our life uh, come out. And what we're having, what we're seeing here in 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 is just that. I will say this, uh, just by way of a little cultural thought um, background on this. I've been. Um, and it, it leads directly to what we're going to see in this passage. And that is, uh, I'm, in the last year or so, uh, there has arisen this uh, desire of it seems even adults I to say just young people, to find safe places. And I not, really I'm not mocking these many seem to be young people who are looking for safe places in universities where there are microaggressions and there are concerns. And uh, without getting into politics, I can can understand why there would be some who would be just a little uneasy about our national circumstances. But I'm trying to understand why students, College where one of my grandsons goes has a safe place and a sign to direct them there. Um, maybe that's enough to say about that, but to say this that, you know, as kingdom citizens, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, how are we to live in what is basically an unsafe world? Is this our aspiration to find safe places? As kingdom citizens, We've got to come to terms with the fact that we live in an unsafe world, and it's going to be bring great, great, uh, put dangers before us as gospel people. All right, let's see how. Turn with me now to Second Corinthians, and here's how we're going to go about it. What I'll do is, rather than read the entire passage, verses 13 through 18, And I'm going to just uh, cut it off in slices as we come through it, and I'm going to uh, follow the thought development through this. But first of all, let me do the helicopter for a moment and get up above what's happening in 2 Corinthians. If you go back to about 55, 56 A.D., uh, and you could uh, drop into the city of Corinth, uh, you would find a congregation there. I don't know if they had to move this manuscript around to multiple house churches. I don't know. But you would find that there was a fresh correspondence from the Apostle Paul to the to the church in Corinth, on that little land bridge, that little isthmus, if you looked in the map at the map in the back of your Bible, you'd see Greece, Macedonia, then you see down the, at the bottom of the map on, for Greece, the Peloponnesus, and there's Corinth. And Paul had two letters. Now, it gets a little complicated. Actually, I think the correspondence with the Corinthians of all of the epistles in the New Testament has more little complexities and in, in such that well, we're not going to go there, but I will tell you this, much. First Corinthians was written to address just a plethora of problems in the church. I mean, it was a church that was... Uh, struggling with some issues. You wonder, how in the world did they get into such a mess? Okay, Paul wrote to the, for, to the Corinthians. After that, many believe that there was a letter that Paul wrote subsequent to 1 Corinthians. It was called a painful letter, like he really had to turn the screws and to do some rebuking. A letter was lost. But then letter, later all within about two years, and this is between Acts 18 and Acts 20. This is where I'm, what I'm describing now. Paul writes a second letter to the Corinthians. And here's why he does it. He does it for three reasons. First of all, he wants to speak to the majority of the congregation. Not everybody in the Corinthian congregation was uh, on the wild side. That uh, he writes to encourage them, to, uh, he goes through his past, his track record with them. He really opens up his heart, and he exp- expresses to them his love for them. He has this this uh, parental relationship. By the way, I'm looking at the handouts tonight here on the front seat. I just I laid them there and forgot to go back and get them. Uh, thank you, Cecil. It's a sheet of paper, but you're going to have the outline come up on that. So uh, that's the... That's one reason Paul wrote this letter, was to connect with the majority of the congregation, to um, build them up in the faith, to strengthen them, encourage them, comfort, comfort. Epistle starts that way. Then the second thing that he does with this letter is uh, in chapters 8 and 9, he has to explain some issues related to this offering. An offering that was going to be, it was collected from the Macedonian churches and was going on out being through Corinth and going to, to the needy saints in Jerusalem. And so he goes th- through the issues involved with that offering. Then the last thing that he does in chapters uh, 10 through 13 is that he has to speak directly to this minority, a rebellious minority there were there was a court thank you men for for doing that that he has to address these who are giving uh, creating problems and who've listened to some false teachers there were there were false apostles who were uh, presenting themselves as uh, having uh, really a superior status to the apostle paul and they were turning their guns on him and accusing him of being a fake and not giving them the full message of the gospel and other things and mocking him and so in the last part of the book though we're not going to go there um, you can see hints of it in this fourth in the chapters 4 and 5 all right that's the helicopter view now let's come back down into chapters 4 in chapter 4. Here's what he's doing. If you look at your Bible, and I want you to look at the text before I read, I want you to have a, this is always so important when you come to the scriptures, that you step back and you look. And I mark my Bible up something uh, awful. I guess people would say, how in the world do you see anything there? Uh, it's just that way. But uh, I have lines drawn here, there, connecting words and thoughts. And I'm, I'm taken by the fact that in chapter four, in verse one, he begins with a therefore. So that tells me that that's a hinge, and he's drawing a conclusion. And his conclusion at that point, it's kind of a, a lead-in that non-Christian people, non-Christian people have a blinder on; they have blinders on their eyes, a veil that's set there. But the gospel removes it. And Paul rejoices that God has put him in what he calls a new covenant ministry to declare the gospel. And you can see how he expresses this, uh, that the fact that this gospel ministry, getting the gospel out at home and abroad, if you will, just consumed him. And there is something else you want to pick up here after that. Therefore, do you notice the little statement, the, the, the statement, we do not lose heart? You see that? Then look over in verse uh, 16, and you see it there. We do not lose heart. And then over in verse uh, 6 of chapter uh, 5, therefore being always of good courage. So you get the impression something's going on with some possible discouragement. Some who may have been ready to uh, throw in the towel, shall we say, to give up, move to the fringes of the life of the church and maybe drop out. But Paul is giving them reasons not to be discouraged, not to throw in the towel. All right, do you see that? Now, come with me down to verse 13, 12. I'm going to start reading and commenting, and then we're going to begin to put things together beginning at that point. And here's where he's come. He's saying, we have this ministry, we're not losing heart, and though we go through all of this trauma and trouble, we go through some terrible things, but here's then what he says beginning at verse 12, where I'm going to start reading. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Now what's this death of which he speaks? He is saying that there are multitude of, of risk that Paul has had to take to get the gospel to them. My, when you read book of Acts and you see what chapter 17 of Acts where he was in Athens before he came to Corinth, that was no easy assignment. And then when you move on down to the 19th chapter of, uh, after he's been to Corinth and he's going to go back again, he goes through Ephesus and that's where the crowds just absolutely go crazy. Talk about a flash mob. They get there, and they don't even not sure why they're there. But they could have torn Paul from limb to limb. So he's just moving in and out of these uh, very dangerous uh, danger zones. So so death is at work in us. Us would be Paul and his apostolic uh, group. Those who traveled with him at various times have been Timothy, it'd been Titus, and Luke, and others but life in you, you Corinthian believers. Spiritual life, growth. You see, I'm taking these risks for your sake so that you will move along and grow and mature in the faith. Since we have, that's a, a key a word there that indicates that there's some kind of summary of thought that's happening here. Since we have this same spirit of faith, that's not a capital S, and I don't know if some of you have studied Bibles and you may have notes. That's, I think it's best to take this in the sense of a, the idea of an attitude of, a disposition. Not talking about the Holy Spirit. But since we have the same spirit of faith, that is a disposition, an attitude, an outlook, a mindset, a faith, confidence in God. According to what has been written, that's an intro, and you know what comes to his mind? What comes to his mind is Psalm 116 and verse 10. I mean, Paul was just, his mind was marinated in the scriptures. And it popped up. Now why? Just pause to explain it. Verse 10 of chapter 16 of Psalm, uh, Psalm 116. The psalmist is, thanks God, God, uh, he's exuberant because he had come into a brush with death. He almost died. We don't know it. If it were an illness or some, you know, human predators, there were those plenty of people who wanted to take the psalmist out and kill him. And we don't know, but he had a brush with death. And he is exuberant with thanksgiving to God that he was delivered from that. So then he, and Paul only quotes, I believe, and so I spoke. And so Paul says, hey, that fits. (laughs) that 's exactly my circumstance that I had this confidence in this New Testament or this new covenant gospel work, and it was risky it cost me I, many times I almost lost my life and but I kept on speaking. I have a little bit of um, nostalgia associated with this statement uh, the first church I had McNeely Memorial Church a little. Church up in the country, in the cornfields, and in in amongst the sheep and the pigs and the cows and all that, about half a mile from the Wabash River. And I was uh, at this church while I was in seminary. It was commuting back and forth to school, and, and uh, I wanted to get a brochure ready for the church, something to distribute out to the community, and. I landed on this verse. I, I have to be honest to tell you, I didn't have the grip on the context as well as I do now, but I think it still works, and I use that as my my uh, presentation, and then, like, we believe, therefore we speak as a church. Okay, it works. We believe what? We have confidence in God's word, we believe the gospel, and we can't seal our mouths so we speak. all right, that's that aside. I believe. And so I spoke. We also believe. That's emphatic in the text. We also believe. And so we also speak. I read, I have a quote in my notes that says, Faith is the mother of confession. That confidence in God and being committed to the authority of Scripture should have the direct effect of opening up our mouths and our lives as gospel people. So he goes on to say this, knowing that he who raised the Lord. Now he's into a motivational issue, and I'm going to expand that in a moment. This is a motivation. Knowing he who raised, that's the pledge of a resurrection, who raised the Lord. Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So the resurrection of Christ here is used as a a prototype for a ground, motivation, stimulation. Listen, there's somewhere where we're going, and that somewhere is resurrection. We have hope. So get get your mental compass set so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. I thought that was a nice piece of providence. We're here the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and let's get to that and look at it. All right, here's the way I want to gather up what I think the apostle is addressing on this matter, of, which is essentially, I say, a remedy for discouragement. That's the way I'm framing the movement here. And it would be this, that we do not, we do not become discouraged when we know why we're living that we have meaning. You know, this is a real cultural problem, folks. This is a, some of the teens have gone, but I would really like to turn the screws in their mind down tight on this. They're moving out into, with a generation that has had the meaning in life rug pulled right out from under them. And we have no meaning in life. You have to manufacture meaning. That's why you see such bizarre uh, causes, uh, what well, I would say causes, where people just commit themselves to with religious fervor. And you, think that you, you see people weeping in the streets and just distraught if something that they cherish and embrace is questioned or it looks like that it's not accepted by others or a majority of people. Meaning is gone. But here, this is the issue, meaning in life. Now, this word discouraged, um, I'll comment more on it and break it down for you a little bit later because uh, it's an interesting word in the original. But I think we could say, I think the message helps us here, you know, with uh, uh, Eugene Peterson. Some people get a little nervous with that. It's a paraphrase, but uh, it's not a translation. But sometimes he rings the bell. He puts it this way. He says that we do not throw up our hands and walk off the job. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) We do not throw up our hands and walk off the job. Now, there's more to be said, but that helps. Now, I give you a question here, and it is this. What two life-changing outlooks feed into having meaning in life? Producing the death, producing life among the dead with a view to the glory of God. What are they? Number one, that we have a mission to bring life into a dying world. That's the first. We have a mission to bring life into a dying world. The death and life of Jesus Christ were simultaneously being worked out in the Apostle Paul's experience. How so? All right, the answer to that question, verses 12, verses 13, verses 14. Watch it. In verse 12, the fact that the life, the death and the life, the resurrection power of Christ being worked out in his life is because, or Paul says, through his suffering the gospel was brought to them. That is, here I'll give you 2 Timothy and chapter 2 and verse 10. It goes this way. Therefore, Paul's last letter, Written letter that we have. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You know that Paul saw himself in his willingness to risk his life and put it on the line for the purpose of getting the gospel to the Corinthians and others. That's how much sold out that he was to it. That's the first reason. Reason number two verse 13, is that the way in which the dying and the the death and the resurrection of Christ being worked out in Paul's life is that that therefore defined his mission. And in verse 13, it was through his suffering that the gospel was lived out before them. You get the point? First of all, he said, listen, I'm going to lay it down for you, my life, so that you can come to know Christ. There are examples of this, by the way, in other places in the New Testament. You know, Paul, uh, just as an aside, Paul got to the churches in Galatia, in Gaul. He got to them. He got to these people because he had some kind of physical problem. He says, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. I think whatever physical condition he had, it was such that it, it erupted in such a way that he had to come and stay among those churches in the area of Galatia. And that as a result, many came to know Christ. And you can see this in other places. Where Paul scrapes with death actually turned out the occasion for gospel preaching. But I'll give you one more. Which popped in my mind. Um, in uh, Romans, or it, when Paul was in Rome, and uh, he wrote to the Philippians. Remember what he told them in the first chapter? He said, here I am in jail. He was in prison. And he couldn't get out. Paul it seemed like he had a case of the gospel fidgets all the time. He had to get out and get the gospel out. But there he was locked in. What did he do? God brought the Praetorian Guard in. You know what the Praetorian Guard is? Those were crack troops that had Rome, duty in Rome. These, they had the, uh, this is like the, the Black Watch among the Scots. And they had, they had rotation rotating shifts to come and, and look over the Apostle Paul. Guess what? Is what they heard, because Paul had Paul had Bible studies there, and they heard the whole Praetorian Guard heard the gospel. That's something. And by the way, you know what else came out of that? This is another aside. That what came out of that is because of Paul had Paul had critics. He had critics who were really laying in on him, of on all times and places while he was in prison. He was suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ in the gospel, but he had some people who just didn't like him. And you know what they were doing? Because they were jealous of Paul because he had center stage. This is, I need to say, that sounds perverted, but all the human heart. They were witnessing more and doing more evangelism so they could elevate their notoriety and their fame, and then Paul would come off looking a little less than famous than they were. You know what Paul said? Well, he said, long as the gospel is preached, I'm paraphrasing. As long as the gospel is preached, I don't care. <laughs> I can take it. They're preaching Christ. They preach Christ. Oh, their motives aren't good, and God's going to take care of that. But they're preaching Christ. All right? there are other stories like that. All right, let's get back on the main road. So what he's saying is that he then lived out the gospel before them. Uh, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives, his. He lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That was Paul's whole life. And he lived. What does the gospel look like in a life? Oh, God, give us examples. Lord, give us examples. Oh, thank God for those examples of people. Most of them are in heaven now. I had examples. And believe me, I needed them. How does it look? How does it look when you love Christ and you want to get the gospel out? I can remember. I won't go through the names. We'd be here a long time. People I heard, up, give testimony in church on a Sunday night or on a Wednesday night. Friends, all these connections, preachers, radio, on and on and on. All of that was just helped to feed, keep the flames burning for the gospel's sake. All right, so it was with Paul. Now, in verse 14, there's something else. You got it? Look at this sequence. Verse 13, uh, in verse 12, he said, listen, my suffering. What I, the risk that I took, that became the occasion for you to hear the gospel and come to Christ. And, you know what else? You saw the gospel lived out in my life. my The way I handled myself among, among you, love, patience, kindness, goodness, so forth. And then this, through Paul's suffering, the hope of the coming glorification was still instilled in them. You get it? That is, it ramped up their own anticipation of the return of Christ or their meeting Christ, their own resurrection. So it, in other words, it kept them stoked in looking toward the coming of Christ. All right, I said there were two issues that were necessary for meaning in life, didn't I? What's the first? Mission. Have a mission. Secondly, motivation. Got to get the motivation Right, And that's what he focuses on in verse 15. What's the motivation? The motivation in life is to bring glory to God. That's it. Make God look good. And Paul was willing to risk death in order to carry out his ministry. He had seen the resurrected Christ. Now, that's a little something that um, you and I can't uh, say, well, I saw the resurrected Christ. Now, you may have been in the hospital and on some... Uh, some funny medicine that made you think funny, but um, no, you didn't see the resurrected Christ. Paul did. Damascus Road, he saw it. Actually, that qualified him as as an apostle. And so he saw the road. And so seeing the finish line kept Paul going. Can I just stop before we transition to this next movement and ask this do you have a grip on this and answer to this question what is my mission in life do i know it wherever you are in whatever stage in life Yeah, I am among the finishers i pray god i want to finish well but younger people younger people do you have that compass setting now it doesn't mean that you you won't necessarily have a career in missions, foreign missions, that'd be wonderful. But all should set their compass on, I want my life wherever it is, however, whatever gifts God has given to me, whatever aptitudes I have, whatever that fire inside of me, like, boy, I just love math. I can't get enough of it. I eat, drink, and sleep math. Okay, God can use that to do, I'm getting some smiles like that's really a far-fetched idea. (laughs) But it you know, it may be. I, I know some who they just they love to help people. Thank God, I have a granddaughter. She loves to have help uh, 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 challenged children in, in in school, and those who are just having a struggle to to with life and to get by and to work through problems. And that's what her major is, and she wants to do that. And How do you explain things like that? Is it God just put it in her heart, and now so you have something that's percolating? You younger people, you're just getting some, getting some traction. And how you gonna what are you gonna major in in college? And you you take all those um, basic courses the first year, year and a half, and then you try to get more focused to say, Lord, I want give me clarity and so I can understand. Where do you want to, how do you want to use the gifts you've given me so the entirety of my life I'll be a gospel person? Wherever it is, it is. All right, next. Verses 16 and 17. We do not become discouraged when we know that our afflictions are light. Ooh, I love this one. But I am, I am really spooked by this one. Look at it. All right, let's read it. Verses 16 and 17 is what the apostle says. So, we do not lose heart. a little Greek word translated, do not lose heart. It's a compound word. It is two words, make up one. It literally means in, like I in. The Greek word is en, in. And the word kakos, which means evil. The word itself is in cacao. And the idea is don't, literally, don't give in to evil. Now, this is why, okay, again, the message here we're not going to give up, but that you're not going to give up to the things that come and assault you and would want to pull you away from the task, from the mindset, the mission, and the motive. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. Our, now, when he says the outer self, this is an interesting psychological uh, uh, factor here that only human beings are like this. That there is something, an, an inner person, the me, the real, the real me, that I can make an observation about my body. Well, I can look in there and say, wow you know you ever do this you talk to yourself oh you're looking old you know you're looking what is that and uh, you didn't have that growing there a year ago or my you look down and you say what is wrong my my, my hips my knees my body. I'm just so you have this ability to inside of you look at the outside of you and talk to it as it were well this inner self, he's saying, the inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, this light, this is an understatement that he's using here, this light momentary affliction is preparing or producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Splendid compensation is waiting is what he's saying. These troubles that you're going through, they're preparing you for a great reward. Ah, all right, let's look at it. Alright, we do not become discouraged when we know that our afflictions are light. We gotta handle this one very carefully. There are three reasons why we can know this is true. If you have the question union write it down. There are three reasons. A key thought, a word, no I'd use Specifically here, but it's the idea. It's the word "no." What did Paul know? Why could he say this? Well, he keeps on spreading the gospel, and his inner person is being renewed. What's going on? All right, three reasons. Number one, Paul's outer—excuse me—because in our afflictions there is growth in knowing God. That's the first thing. In our afflictions, there's growth. In knowing God. Paul's outer man was decaying. Now, let me give you a little what do you think? Imprisonments, beatings, this is true of Paul, beatings, lashings, stonings, shipwrecks, long travels, mental stress and dealing with continual dangers, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, exposure to the cold, pressures from caring for the churches. And at the same time, T.M.B. Too many birthdays. <laughs> He's aging. So think of what, you, just imagine what Paul, he was probably, I'm, I'm guessing here, probably in his middle, middle 60s, late 60s. And that was quite an accomplishment for that day to be living that long. But just imagine what all of that would do to the body. You would look at him. You would see him maybe three, four years later, and maybe the people stood around in little groups in the church, and they hadn't seen him in a while. And said, Whew, "My, he's aged." You say, I can't believe it. Uh, we probably have had people say that about us. But he's aging. But then he's yet he's gone through all of this, all of these difficulties. That does something to you. You think he may have had a few scars? You Think he may have had arthritis? Do you think maybe he had? Um, just think, without the medical attention, the medical uh, you know, medication, and all that's available to us, and he wouldn't have had any of it, and he just keeps going along. What must he? What kind of problems, aches, and pains, and maladies, and conditions, and back trouble, and uh, who knows? Maybe you know torn rotator cuff, and think of those stonings that he endured. And, you know, this, they weren't throwing pea gravel at him. <laughs> it, was, it was just, okay, use your imagination. So then he says, all right, that's true. And all of this that I've been through, and all that my body's, it's, it's, it's aging, it's breaking down, it's decaying. But the inner man, inner man, is being renewed. What's that? That's the regenerated, spiritual, new me. The new man, Paul calls it elsewhere. And that the language that he... This renewal idea, Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the... Do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the... What? What? Renewing of your mind. Oh. So something's been going on inside of Paul that... Is, tells us the real story. Yes, the body is breaking down. By the way, I have a little note here that I, I tracked down again. I remembered it from years ago doing my work in, in this, the area of suffering. And I was thinking about all of the things that you go through. And Paul, uh, he went through, and he speaks of momentary light affliction. <laughs> Moment, momentary light. Tell, tell that to somebody. Tell that to Johnny Erickson. For all of her adult life, has been a paraplegic, and others who just deal with terrible, terrible things. Okay, but hold on, hold on. I like this little quote. Now, it's it's from this lady. She was a nun. She was a Spanish mystic and a Carmelite nun. Okay, but you know, sometimes people who have a lot of bad theology can say some still say good things. She said this. in light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth will be seen to be more serious than no more. Excuse me, let me back up. In light of heaven, the worst suffering on earth will be seen to be no more serious than one night in an inconvenient hotel. <laughs> that stuck with me through the years. Just remember your worst night in a bad motel. All right. And when we get to heaven, we'll just, <laughs> thank you, Lord. Oh, what. Oh. All right. Okay, so here we are then, this renewal. Now, I want to to make this clear that when he says renewal, here's what he's saying. Okay, the body's breaking down. It's just been ravaged, ravaged by all of the, the, the difficulties that have gone with traveling all over the Mediterranean world at that time and all that he endured. And that, so you take pain and suffering plus plus spiritual maturity. That's what he means when he says renewal. That is, ah, I'm seeing things. I'm, I'm knowing God better. I'm, I know it's overworked, but it helps. I'm connecting the theological dots. I'm putting things together. I'm learning. I'm growing. All right? Pain and suffering plus spiritual maturity equals what? Divine perspective. Clarity of thought. Eternal perspective. If you're maturing right, and as, the, as we're getting older, if you're maturing in the faith, <clears throat> then you ought to have really sharp, sharpening focus on what's important. Was I'll call it. You remember this was popular in educational circles a few years back. Values clarification. <laughs> This is the ultimate values clarification, and you can see what's important and what's not important. All right, number two. I said that there were three of these reasons. One, three reasons how you can know that your afflictions are L-I-G-H-T. Number two, because our afflictions are temporary. Momentary is his word. They're short-lived, relatively speaking. So our afflictions are light because they can only last so long. And Paul was not mocking pain and suffering. He didn't. I I can't see Paul walking. Somebody, you know, he goes into a congregation, hasn't seen them. He finds here the sick and the the disabled and people who are dealing with real life struggles and saying, hey, get over it. It's only for a short time. I mean, Is that the way you would go to somebody in the hospital? That tube's running in and out of them? You say, hang in there, it's just a little while. I don't think so. But what the point is, is this. Here's the point. That what is describing here is that, comparatively speaking, all things are working together for good to them that love the Lord, and they're called according to his purpose. And these eternal purposes that God is working out in my life, that has... That has an a, a modifying effect upon the way in which I deal with the duration of my suffering. We heard uh, some of us heard Johnny Erickson up at the c c e f conference in Chattanooga a month or so ago. We've heard her before some of us have. And she was rehearsing so I, I've, I've heard her for years off and on, but now this latest time she's up in her sixties. And she was describing some recent, it's not bad enough, all that she's been through being a paraplegic. And um, then she went through a whole awful period of time where she was just having this pain that was inexplicable. They just couldn't find anything to treat just generalized pain she was experiencing. And then she was told that or found out she had breast cancer. And she described that process, that experience. She had an interesting perspective on that. She said words to the effect of, like, oh, thank the Lord, I can see him soon. (laughs) Cancer was good news to her, that it would give her relief from her pain and suffering. But the point is this, that this momentary light affliction is language that Paul is using. It's purposely compared to, and let's go to the next one. This, This is important. The third reason, the third reason why our affliction is light. First of all, what is it? We keep on growing in the Lord, maturing in the faith. We get a better grip on on reality, knowing Christ. Secondly, we know that our our afflictions are temporary. They are, compared to eternity, just a itsy-bitsy little dot compared to the infinity of eternity. And then thirdly, Because of the weight of glory. Because of the weight of glory. That we have a splendid compensation. That Paul is looking here to receive a great eternal reward. We're picking up on that, aren't we? (laughs) Rewards. Paul's thinking rewards. And what he's saying is that this weight here is used to contrast to light or lightness. And the human assessment would call physical affliction a heavy weight. Faith enabled Paul to view it this way. It's light compared to. I came on something, and I want to read a little short paragraph. This this little book by C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory, you want it. You want to read it, and you want especially to this chapter, The Weight of Glory. This is the section where there's the, the, the famous statement that I' got to read the, pushing it here. Um, but I'll read the two paragraphs in this chapter. By the way, when you read Lewis, when you read Lewis, you can't watch it during a football game. I'm sorry, I tried. It doesn't work. You need, you need to get all right, get your cup of coffee, get your good night's sleep. Or just when you're at your best, sit down with no distractions and read it carefully and savor it. You will be rewarded. All right. With that said, this is a, we all, oh, this is a well-known quote. And then I'm going to get to the other, which is not so well-known. He says uh, with regard to this matter of rewards, If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Okay, you've heard that one before. But here's another one. I love this. This is this chapter on glory and rewards. And he just unpacks it. I said, how does mind work like this? He gave him a gift. He says this. All right, and this, and he goes on to say, this brings me to another sense of glory. Glory is brightness, splendor, luminosity. We are to shine as the sun. We are to be given the morning star. I think I begin to see what it means. In one way, of course, God has given us the morning star already. You can go and enjoy the gift on many fine mornings if you get up early enough. What more, you may ask, do we want? Ah, but we want so much more. Something the books on aesthetics take little notice of. But the poets and the mythologies know all about it. We do not want merely to see beauty. Though God knows even that is bounty enough. We want something else which can hardly be put into words. To be united with the beauty we see. To pass into it. To receive it into ourselves. To bathe in it. To become part of it. And... Okay, i got to stop right in a minute. It's a good section. Now, he's not talking about this pagan idea of getting, becoming one with nature. He goes on to explain that. Okay, I was not... More to read there. you got to get into it. You have to have been there. All right, so read it. I'll leave it up to you. Okay, now let's get to the third and final issue here. All right, do you not want to... Be, we do not want to throw in the towel. Do not be discouraged. When we Do not become discouraged when we focus on eternal things. See that, verse 18? There are two vision-clearing truths we need. Two. Two. One is, we have choices to make. We do not look at the things which are seen. Here, I've got to read the text. Is that I would I must. Verse 18. Comment on it. As we look not to the things that are seen. His word there for look is the word scope. It means to concentrate your attention upon. There's there's about three or four synonyms for look in the New Testament. And the focus on goal here. We do not look at the things that are seen, but the things which are unseen, eternal realities, the resurrection to come. For the things that are seen, they're transient, but the things which are unseen, they're eternal. Now, here's what I mean. We have choices to make that looking at the things which are seen doesn't give you a complete and accurate picture. You can get depressed by focusing only on the temporary, right? (laughs) The pain and suffering of the present doesn't tell us the whole story. When the obstacles of life become the center of our attention and are allowed to define us in our future, we're drinking the poison of disillusionment. Now, we've sunk into that. We'll all have to confess. We've, we've, we've failed at that point at some time or another, but hopefully we didn't linger there, but we can do it. How do Christians end up living in the land of brokenness, despair, forsakenness, and destruction? I'm picking up what Paul said back up. Was it in verse 8? He said, you know, we were down but not out, persecuted but not forsaken. do you remember that? Okay. How do Christians end up living in the land of brokenness, despair, forsakenness, and destruction? By bad vision and the accumulation of a lot of bad decisions. That's how. That's how. But secondly here, we are to I said there are two ways we've got to look to get our eyes cleared, our spiritual eyesight. We are to look in the right places. Our mind's eye must be focused by faith on the invisible, the eternal. Though we have not seen him, Jesus, we lo- I'm picking up 1 Peter 1, 1.8 here. Slipped, I'm slipping that in. Though we have not seen him, we love him. And though we have not seen him now, we believe in him. We greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That we can see him. We can see him. How? With the eye of faith. With the eye of faith, we look to the things eternal. They're real. They're real. They're real. And I'll end with this. Two little short paragraphs, and I'll conclude. All right, what exactly does this mean? It means that my cancer is not the final story. Its pain and disappointments rough me up and may even mock me. But the eye of faith looks beyond it to gaze, to my gaze upon the Savior who loves me and is waiting to receive me into his presence. So I keep on serving him who loves and gave his life for me. I call out and cry to God, Oh God, give me dying grace. As the moments come, just give me the grace to handle one more bout of nausea. Give me the grace to handle one more agonizing, painful, horrible, sleepless night. Lord, One, just give me the grace moment by moment because I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking beyond this moment. It won't last forever, and I'll be in the presence of Christ. What exactly does this mean? It means that a broken family, divorce, An unloving and abusive father will not dominate my outlook on life. By the eye of faith, I see my Father in heaven who loves me, who is infinitely wise, who has things for me to do now, and will welcome me into the eternal comfort of his presence. Momentary light affliction. Do not lose heart. Do not give in to discouragement. God help us. We're weak people. We can be exuberant at the moment, but Lord, sometimes these emotions have a way of just so they qu- always they fade, they melt away. But Lord, we're left, we're left with this tangible, palpable reality. That Lord, our hope is in Christ, in the resurrection. Keep us going, Lord, and for that one here tonight who perhaps he or she is at a low point and in some special way needs this, God lift them, lift them, encourage them, all of us, Lord, for your gospel this week as we move into thanksgiving. And we thank you, Lord, for that hope in Christ's name. Amen.